Billy Graham once wrote, whether prayer changes our situation or not, one thing is for certain, prayer will change us. This morning, we're going to discuss the prayer of Jesus in the garden, the night before he was crucified. And as we do this, we will see how the prayer of Jesus did not change the situation and circumstance that was to come. Jesus prayed, but the circumstance didn't change. The, the situation that was coming up didn't change. But it did give him an emotional resolve and a determination to be obedient. To be faithful to his father all the way to the end. But we will also see in contrast how the situation and circumstance for disciples was not going to change. But because of their lack of prayer, they were not ready when the situation and circumstance came and they failed when they were tempted. So we're going to see this contrast this morning between Jesus praying and getting ready and determined and faithful to be obedient and then the disciples not praying and because of that they were not ready and they were not faithful. So Billy Graham was right. Jesus and his prayer in the garden changed him. And the disciples were not changed because they were not faithful in prayer as they should have been. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, 36 through 46. Matthew 26, 36 through 46. Let's read this together and then I will break it down and show us and kind of focus us in on this contrast. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came, and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to the disciples, and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I want to first talk about the setting of this prayer, the setting of this scene for us so that we can understand kind of where we're coming from and, and how we're headed forward. You see, 
Jesus and his disciples had traveled from the upper room where the Last Supper was. They had traveled from there to the Mount of Olives. Now, even more specifically, a garden called Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. Now, this garden could not have been too far away from Jerusalem for two basic reasons. One, they were able to travel there from the upper room, and Judas was able to bring the temple guard to the garden to arrest Jesus. So this garden on the Mount of Olives wasn't too far away from where the where Judas was, where the upper room was. So th this is close to Jerusalem. Now, here's what we have described for us. Jesus is there with 11, because remember, Judas has already hit the road and gone to do what um, was in his heart to do. So Jesus takes the 11, and they come to the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus says that he wants them to stay there while he goes on. What probably is happening here is probably Jesus has told the disciples to stay at one of the entrances into the garden. And then he takes three of the disciples with him into the garden to pray. Now, we call these three the inner circle, right? These are the guys that got to do things with Jesus that the other guys didn't get to do. Um, Jesus had this inner circle and he would take them different places and he wouldn't take uh, the rest of them, and, and he, he, they were with him when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. They were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. They got to see Jesus transfigured in, in his glory. And here they are brought with Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane, in further into the garden where the other eight are left outside the garden waiting. They get to be brought in to spend time with Jesus. And these three men get to see something that I don't think they had probably ever seen before. The Bible describes that Jesus, going into the garden, began to be sorrowful and troubled. These are some deep, passionate, emotional words here. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. This language echoes Psalm 42, Psalm 42, David is, is writing, and David says this multiple times throughout Psalm 42. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? The, the Old Testament Greek, which is the Septuagint, actually translates Psalm 42, those words I just read, and these words here in Matthew 26, the, the same way translates them as being sorrowful and troubled. My, my soul is sorrowful. My soul is downcast. This is the condition Jesus is in emotionally. And Peter, James, and John get to see Jesus begin to get sorrowful and cast down and troubled and in turmoil. Jesus even says to them in verse 38... My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Literally translated, until death. Maybe we would paraphrase it something like this. My soul is very sorrowful that I could die. My soul is very sorrowful that it is killing me. Have you ever been in such an emotional, horrible place 
that you felt like you were going to die. That's Jesus. And what you ought to do is take whatever turmoil you, you were in and then imagine it being even worse. Because whatever situation you were in where you felt like emotionally you could die from the, the, the situation, the sorrow that you were in, Jesus is experiencing something worse than that. And here, Peter, James, and John are watching Jesus emotionally look crumbled in front of them. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what they saw that day? That night as Jesus says to them, my soul is sorrowful even to death. This is the absolute utmost turmoil. So much turmoil that the Gospel of Mark says Jesus begins sweating drops of blood. Matthew does not record this, but Jesus does. Uh, you guys know who Lee Strobel is? Lee Strobel wrote The Case for Christ many, many years ago. I think they turned his story into a movie called The Case for Christ. I haven't seen the movie. I've read the book multiple times. And, and what he does in there, Lee Strobel goes and he interviews different experts on the Gospels. He interviews people about the, the death of Jesus. He interviews people just about the life of Jesus, the historical content, all this kind of stuff. Because originally he set out, because his wife became a Christian, he set out to disprove Jesus uh, that the Gospels were real and that everything Jesus said he did and uh, he said, you know, this isn't true. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, he wrote for the Chicago Tribune or something like that and he wanted to disprove Jesus. Well, he begins studying Jesus and he ends up getting saved. And he interviews in his book, The Case for Christ, he interviews a, a doctor named Alexander Methriel and he talks about this rare medical condition that Jesus is experiencing here. I don't know about you, but I've never met anyone who said they have ever sweated drops of blood before. But here's what he says. He says, this is known as a medical condition called hematidrosis. It is not very common, but it is associated with a high degree of psychological stress. What happens is that severe anxiety causes the release of chemicals that break down the capillaries in your sweat glands. And as a result, there is a small amount of bleeding into those glands and the sweat comes out tinged with blood. He says, we're not talking about a lot of blood, just a very, very small amount. So Jesus' body is going through so much that the capillaries in his sweat glands rupture. The anxiety, the psychological and emotional sorrow that he's in causes his body to begin freaking out. And he begins sweating drops of blood. This is, in fact, the worst turmoil any human being probably has ever been in. And Jesus says to his disciples in verse 38, Watch with me. Verse 38, he says, watch with me. Remain here and watch with me. Notice... He doesn't ask them to pray yet. He says, watch with me. So this has caused theologians to, to kind of wonder what, what was Jesus asking from them this, this first time? What was it Jesus was asking them when he says, I want you to, to watch here. Stay right here. 
I'm going to go a little bit further in, and I want you to watch with me. And the conclusion that most come to is that Jesus simply wanted them close to him. Keep an eye on me. I'm going to go pray. Keep an eye on me. Watch me. Support me. Be here with me as an encouragement for what I'm fixing to have to go through. I want you to be here with me. It must have felt comforting for Jesus to know that as he was praying, he wasn't there alone. That his closest three friends were watching him. Of course, that didn't last very long. But let me say a word before we get into kind of the the meat of these prayers here. This is kind of broken up into three scenes. And that's kind of how I'm going to take it. I'm going to look at each one of these scenes separately. So we're going to have three scenes here. So we have the setting and then we're going to have scene one, scene two, scene three. And I, I just want us to see them in these, these three little segments here because I think they're important um, to break down this way because we're going to see a progression that kind of takes place. Scene number one is in verses 39 through 41. Jesus goes a little further, it says, to pray. And doing so, he fell on his face. This is the absolute lowest posture that a person could get in while making a prayer of supplication. When approaching God, this is bodily posture-wise, the lowest anybody could get. He is laying face down, body to the ground, face to the ground. This portrays humility. It portrays seriousness, but it also portrays a desperateness. His body just throwing itself down on the ground as he begins to pray. Desperate, serious, humble. You're probably very familiar with what he prayed, but I want to discuss it for a few minutes here. First, he says, my father. Face down, serious, desperate, humble. He cries out, my father. This is the word Abba. This is the word that little children would call their fathers. Little Jewish children would call their fathers Abba. We might translate it Papa. Jesus, face down on the ground, sweating drops of blood in the most emotional turmoil that any human being has ever been in. And he says, Papa, my father. And then he says something that I don't think most of us would deem very spiritual. Because, listen, Jesus knows why he came, right? It's not like Jesus just found out. No, this isn't some new information Jesus is just getting. Wait, wait, I got to die? He's known this all along. So this isn't new information he's gathering here. And yet, he prays a prayer that we could probably at a distance and disconnected could look at and say, well, wait a minute. If you know you got to die, this isn't a very spiritual prayer to pray then. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. I mean, you could almost be like, well, Jesus, why are you asking that? 
You know you can't. You know what the answer is. What, what are you, why are you praying this? But I want you to see something so very important. Jesus has such intimacy with the Father, he doesn't have to hold anything back when he prays. When he says in our video every time that you come to him not as you think you are, not as you wish you were, but simply as you are, that's what Jesus is doing right here. He is throwing himself down in the most turmoil any human being has ever been in. He is sorrowful to the point of death. He throws himself down face first on the ground in humility before God. And he says what's on his heart. Lord, I don't want to go through this. Is it possible that this could pass from me? And he's saying this because that is how emotionally he feels. He is laying his emotions down before God. He's saying, God, I feel broken here. I feel hope. I mean, this is, this is the worst I could possibly feel. Lord, I don't want to go through this. If it's, a, if it's possible, let it pass. You see, he's not, he hasn't gained new information. He's simply coming to terms emotionally with the reality of what is to come. And he's got no problem laying this down before God. Sometimes we go to pray, and I think we are so scared just to tell God what we are really dealing with. Sometimes we don't even like to say the words. Some sin we commit, we, don't even, we like to hold back from the reality of the words that we're actually, Lord, I, I know I did this, I'm sorry that I did this, and Lord, I won't do it again, and you're calling it this because you're afraid to just say the words out loud before God because you're ashamed. Jesus has no problem coming emotionally to God. As if we got to put on a mask before we come. Maybe we're just not as desperate as Jesus. Right? The idea of a cup here, it was a metaphor. It was a metaphor for suffering And in this case, it was a metaphor for suffering under the wrath of God. We know this because the Old Testament, Psalm 11, Isaiah 51, Ezekiel 23, uses this language of the wrath of God being a cup that is going to be poured out. Yes, Jesus was going to physically suffer. But the thing he wanted to really pass over him was the wrath of God being poured on him. The wrath that you and I deserved being poured out on Jesus instead. It's what it means to be a propitiation, to be one that takes the wrath for us. Jesus in his humanity did not want to go through this. Jesus in his emotional state did not want to have to experience the wrath of God being poured on him. And so he says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Of course, then he says, not my will, your will be done. We'll cover that in just a minute. But then Jesus returns to the three guys that were supposed to be watching. Remember this comfort that he was feeling, right? He, he, he leaves them there, and now he goes to pray, and he knows these guys are supposed to be watching me. They're there for me. They're, 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 they're this emotional support. They've got my back. These guys are here for me. And then he walks back after praying, and he finds them asleep. I can only imagine the disappointment in Jesus when he sees them. That's not why I brought you in here. Could have left you at the... The opening of the, the garden to do that. 
I didn't bring you in here to sleep. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, so, Peter, you could not watch with me for one hour? I find it interesting that he points out Peter. I mean, James and John are there too. Why does he say Peter? It's because Peter was the one who always shoots off at the mouth and says, I'll do anything for you, Jesus. I'll fight for you. I'll die for you. I'll do anything for you. Remember when you said you, that, I, that I was going to betray you or deny you before the cock crows three times? No, I won't. No, I will not. And Jesus looks at him and says, you can't even stay awake for me for one hour. That hurts just to think about, just to read. Peter, you couldn't stay awake for an hour. You couldn't be there for me for an hour. Jesus now changes his command. And instead of simply saying watch, now he says watch and pray. Watch and pray. Now, I don't think he is telling them to pray for him. I don't think that's what he is telling them to pray for. I think he's saying, pray for yourselves. Because right after this, Jesus says, tells them to watch and pray. And then he says that you may not enter into temptation, verse 41. That you may not enter into temptation. Jesus wanted them praying for themselves because they were about to have to go through a lot themselves. Jesus was going to be arrested. Jesus was going to be tried. Jesus was going to be executed. Jesus was going to be beaten. And these guys were going to come to a situation where they were going to have some choices to make about how they were to act. Were they going to be faithful? Were they going to stand? And Jesus says, watch and pray. And pray for yourselves because temptation is coming and I don't want you guys to fall and to fail and to, to, to blow it when you have this chance. Listen, I know, he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, so you need to start praying. Pray for yourselves, Jesus is saying. You're going to need it. You're going to need it. And then we move to scene two. Jesus leaves them again, and he goes and he prays. But this time, we see something a little bit different. If you're, if you're not careful, you'll kind of blow right through it, and you'll miss the subtle change that happens here. But I think it's really important. Jesus says first, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. Here he says, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. There's a subtle change. And here's what I think that subtle change in the way it's said here means. I think this second prayer is not Jesus emotionally asking God, Lord, I don't want to go through this. Please take it away. I think this is a recognition that I know I have to go through this. And I'm going to do your will. I know I got to go through this. I know it's not going to be taken away. And I am going to do your will. I'll accomplish it, Father. 
This is so powerful because I think about what Jesus taught the disciples. Remember when we talked about Matthew chapter 6, Jesus, when he was teaching his disciples how to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those weren't just words for Jesus. He was fixing to live all this out perfectly. Jesus said to his disciples, you need to pray in a manner that focuses on the will of God being accomplished in your life and on the earth. You need to pray for that. And now here is Jesus living this out, out perfectly. He is, he is basically saying, I'm willing to do anything to make, Father, your will be accomplished on the earth. Anything. God, what, Father, whatever you need from me, Papa, whatever you need from me, I will do it. Anything. Leonard Ravenhill once wrote, this is where Jesus died. The cross was just the proof. He was dying to his emotions here. He was saying, this is how I feel, but I'm going to die to that to do my Father's will. He was not going to resist his arrest. Could have. He wasn't going to resist his trial, either one, by the Jews or the Romans. He could have. He wasn't going to resist the mocking. He wasn't going to resist the beating. He wasn't going to resist carrying the cross. He wasn't going to resist the nails. He wouldn't resist his death. Why? Because the most important thing to him was fulfilling the will of his father. And he would do anything to get that done. Think the disciples are praying like that? Think the three are praying like that when Jesus goes back? See, that's what they should have been praying, right? They should have been praying the same thing. Lord, we, we don't know what's coming. Obviously, something's going on. Jesus is, is struggling. I know he's said some stuff that's really weird to us. We don't understand. We don't know exactly what's happening. But, Father, we want your will to be done in our lives. We are willing to do anything. We will be obedient to you. They should have been praying the very same thing. And Jesus comes back. And they're asleep because their eyes were heavy. Matthew doesn't tell us that Jesus woke them up, but Mark says that they did not know how to answer him. Probably safe to assume he woke them up again. And whatever he said to them, they didn't know how to answer. Scene three. So leaving them again, verse 44, he went away and prayed for a third time. And Matthew tells us Jesus prayed saying the same words. We can probably conclude that this third session of prayer is a continuation of the second with him firming up his resolve, firming up his dedication to be faithful for what was about to come. This is Jesus continuing this prayer. I will do anything, Lord. Give me the strength. Empower me to go through anything for you. Submission and strength. That's what he was praying for. Submission and strength. I want to submit and I want to be strong in my submission. You see, agony and suffering 
threw Jesus down at the feet of his father's will. And in contrast, the disciples, unaware of their own danger, continued to sleep. And Jesus says something this third time when he comes back to them that's a little confusing. Literally in the Greek, it simply says, sleep and take your rest. That's all it says. Sleep and take your rest. Jesus comes back up to them, sees them sleeping, and says to them, sleep and take your rest. There's two possible things that Jesus means here. There's two options. One, Jesus recognizing that they're not going to stay awake and pray, tells them basically, have it your way, just stay sleeping. Right? I've already woken you up twice. I've already told you what you're supposed to do. You're not going to do it. You're going to stay asleep. And Jesus basically comes to them in kind of a resolve in a, in, a, in a giving up way, just basically says, then sleep and take your rest. And Jesus lets them sleep until he says, see the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. So he lets them sleep. That's one option. The other option is Jesus is saying to them this ironically. He's basically saying, you think you've got time to sleep and rest? See, look, the hour is at hand. In other words, you don't have time to sleep or rest. If you'll notice, if you have an ESV Bible, if you'll notice it says in the ESV in verse 45, sleep and take your rest, and then it adds later on. You see that? Sleep and take your rest Later on, this is the translators of this version interpreting this. They're adding later on because in their opinion, what Jesus means is, listen, you don't have time right now to sleep and take rest. So sleep and take rest later on because look, the hour is at hand. If you were asking me which one I had to choose, sometimes... As pastors, we like to just sometimes give the two options and go, don't know, <laughs> figure it out. I would pick two. If I had to pick one, I would, if I had to pick one of these two, I would pick two. Jesus said to them, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, I had two choices when I came to this text on how I wanted to approach it. I was either going to break down just the prayer of Jesus. Not my will, your will be done. And what that meant for us. And as I begin to study this week and I begin to think and pray about this, I began thinking what I wanted to do instead is I wanted to contrast the prayer of Jesus with the lack of prayer of the disciples. And I wanted us to see this for a very important reason. There are times in our lives, many, many times in our lives, when trouble, suffering, and hardship is just around the corner. It's just around the corner. We don't know that it's there. We, we may not see it coming. Maybe, maybe we have some kind of idea that something's up, that, that things aren't going well, and then something hits. 
But the truth is, for, for us as believers, somewhere down the corner, trouble is there. We know this to be true. Peter says, expect tough times. Expect tribulation. This is what it's like to be a Christian living your life. These things are there. Trouble is around the corner, even if you can't see it coming. And our prayers and our life of prayers is preparation for that trouble. You see, here's what we often do. We're so much like the disciples. Trouble's around the corner. We just kind of sleepwalking through life. Just kind, of, just kind of going through the motions. We love Jesus. We, we want to serve Jesus. But there's not this desperate life of prayer that we have. And so what happens is, is we're just kind of, to steal a lyric from a song, we're dancing through life. And then boom, it hits. And we are not prepared at all for that trouble that just hit us. Because we've been in a place of just sleepwalking, of just kind of dancing through, just kind of going through the motions, and then boom, it hits, and we're not ready. We're like the disciples, not like Jesus. And make no mistake about it, it's not as if this is the first time Jesus has been praying about this thing. All the three years of Jesus' ministry leaning up to this point, he's been going off by himself praying. By himself, over and over and over again, in preparation, in submission, asking for God's power, asking for God's strength to do what God has called him to do. So when the trouble hit, Jesus was already in the mode of being prepared. This prayer in the garden changed him, it prepared him, it strengthened him and his faithfulness. Listen, church, prayer is warfare. And it's preparation for warfare. It's both. Prayer is warfare. Lord, do this work in me. Protect me from the evil one. Protect me from my flesh. Help me to be what I'm supposed to be. Lord, prepare me for the life you've called me to, to live. Help me be what I'm supposed to be. It's, it's this preparation for warfare, but it's also warfare in the moment. Change me now. Do this work in me now. Help me now. Because I know what's coming is going to be difficult. And when I get into that, I'm prepared because my life of prayer has prepared me for it. I'm not asleep We can't be like the disciples here. I've, I've laid before us from the text two, I haven't done it, but the scripture does it, two contrasting ways of, of thinking about prayer. One, I'll do it if I get around to it, but if I fall asleep, I'll, you know, tired. The other is this desperation of preparedness, of submission and strength for what is coming. Our prayers, church, may never change the situation that is coming in front of us. There is something God has already ordained for you that is going to hurt you and, and put you in distress and sorrow. It is already ordained and laid out in front of you. And no matter, you can pray that it's not going to come. You could pray that it might go away. But God has already ordained that the answer to that prayer is no. The Father's saying, no, this is my will for you. And no matter how much you pray, it's not going to change that. But your prayers will change you. So that when you get to that, you're ready. 
you're different. Your faith is strong and you are prepared. I'm not saying you won't be broken. You may pray like David, my flesh and my heart are failing, but God, you are the strength of my heart. And I know that because I've been praying for this for years. I've been on my face. I've been in desperation. I know that you have been raising me up and training me up and preparing me for whatever lies ahead. We can't be like the disciples. The situation wasn't going to change. They didn't know it was coming and they were asleep. Our situations may not change. The trouble lying ahead of us may not change. It may be there because it's God's will for us, for us to go through it. But what needs to change is not the circumstance, it's me. I need to change. I need to be more faithful. I need to be stronger. I need to be more humble. I need to be more loving so that I'm ready when that situation that God has prepared for me is there. When we've been doing this series on prayer, we haven't been doing this series on prayer because we simply want to give you some good techniques and things to think about. Listen, we want to be a big word church. We like the big words. I used propitiation earlier. I like that word. But listen, if our theology... It's just some intellectual knowledge in our brains where we know the big words and we know the right theology and we've got it all right up here, but it doesn't work out in our lives on the street level, then it doesn't matter what's in here. I mean, the disciples could know all the right stuff, but they weren't, they, they're not, if you're not ready, it doesn't matter. What we want to be is a people that knows the right stuff and we let the theology of prayer hit to a practical level and we become people of prayer that have lives of prayer. And it's not just something we know in our, in our minds. It's something we do on a daily basis because that is what changes us. We got to get ready, church, for whatever is laid out in front of us. And prayer is what gets us ready.